0: Ecclesiastes, and why was Ecclesiastes looked down upon by some? It was depressing. It's it's pessimistic. God's not pessimistic. Um, Esther, why Esther? God's name is never mentioned in Esther once. So, how could there be a book in the Bible that doesn't mention God? You know? That's three. Ezekiel, why Ezekiel? Someone else over here. Lucas, why Ezekiel? It's certainly a strange book. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But a little more specific. Does anybody remember? Hey, Will, I just printed six more copies. Ezekiel has a description of the temple that's different than Moses' description. And you don't disagree with Moses. Moses. In, in Judaism. Mo- Moses reigns. Okay, so we have Song of Solomon, we have Esther, we have Proverbs. Oh, Proverbs is the last one. You're going to say Proverbs? No, I was going to comment on Ezekiel. Okay. Um, I read, a week ago I read the whole account of the, of the temple. Now why wouldn't that be a prophetic image of the New Testament? That, that's, that, that's the solution New Testament scholars say. But remember, this is this is the Old Testament Israelites analyzing why is it different without a theology of a future millennial kingdom. So we, we say that's a future temple in a millennial kingdom. They said, don't, and not everyone believes that. But you're right, that is the solution for the church. Yeah, because I, I strongly believe that we're in the you know, time like right now. In, you know. Right. And that's not fulfilled completely. Yeah, right. Okay, so why Proverbs? Yeah, it, it appeared to contradict itself, wisdom that contradicted itself, that, you know, answer a fool in his folly, don't answer a fool in his folly, which, which what did we say that meant? Pardon me? Yeah, yeah, you talk to a fool, you lose no matter what. So, um, okay, so, so how many books in the Old Testament? 39 how many books in the new testament and 3 times 9 is you guys got your math down since last week we so the um, so people on live stream can hear the question we well, you know that's probably a good idea It slows everything down okay so you repeat it I think yeah, yeah. Repeat yeah. It? Leave, leave that and ready to go if we change my mind okay okay you, um, i'll be happy to run around okay you can stay on camera. okay all right <laughs> um <clears throat> So in the end, we had seven books that the Catholic Church canonized that the Protestant Church doesn't accept in the Council of Trent in 1547, and it's called Deuterocanonical, which means the second canon. Seven books and three editions. I handed out to you three editions, the prayer of Azariah and the three young men in Daniel 3 and um, Daniel 4, 13 and 14, Susanna and Belle and the dragon. Did anybody happen to read them? Did we just kill trees for nothing? <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad I emailed those extras to you this week and didn't print them. So Darrell, are we ready to go? Oh, we're on, okay. So, let's, we're, we're live, let's pray and um, get started. Father, thank you For today, thank you for this beautiful snow we got over the week. Lord, we thank you also for your word. And tonight, guide us in a conversation about um, why these 27 books of the New Testament. And and just confirm in our hearts and mind, Lord, that you have spoken to us and we can trust your word. So thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I handed out, Will handed out some documents. Uh, the, the, the notes for tonight, but also a one page document. I want you to grab that one page document. It's one page. These are quotes from different books. Some are nonfiction, some are fiction, and that make comments about the reliability of the New Testament and the process by which we ended up with these 27 books. And I want, I want to read a couple of them to you. So, Dan Bernstein's Secrets of the Code. Is a compilation of different authors on, um, of different uh, um, articles written by different people. Eventually, four gospels and 23 other texts were canonized, declared to be holy scripture into the Bible. They did not occur. This did not occur, however, to the sixth century. All right? I'm going to suggest to you tonight that's 200 years off. All right. So that I, I think he's mistaken, and whatever his purposes are, the next one's a little more provocative. It's a remarkable fact that although nearly all modern forms of Christianity do not question the text in the New Testament, the modern forms of Christianity are the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, and the Protestant Church. Those are the three branches of Christianity. And all forms of it do not question the 27 books, he's saying. In the first four centuries, every single document was at some time either branded... Time, was it sometime or other branded as either heretical or forged? That is a bunch of horse manure, horse manure yes. I'm line, I can't say that on TV though. So um, it, it's like it's, it's, they made it up, they pulled it out of thin air. It's ridiculous. <clears throat> now, here's one from the Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code, a novel by Dan Brown, deeply influenced people's beliefs about the Bible. Um, so do you, how many, we talked about this last week. How many you saw the movie? <clears throat> okay. So more than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament, and yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John among them. So it's like they had this 80 Gospels lined out, and they just started voting on it. And again, this is, this is ridiculous. When Matthew, Mark, and Luke were established as, as canonical, most of these 80 weren't even written yet. Most of the 80 Gospels they're talking about, which, by the way, I think is an exaggeration. I don't think they're are 80, are 2nd and 3rd century Gospels, and we'll talk about them tonight. So, again, but you say things like this, people believe it. People hold God, see, you can't trust the Bible. See, there's a conspiracy. Hey, you guys notice how many conspiracies are going out right now about COVID and about Trump and all this stuff? People love conspiracies, and they suck them in and believe them. It's been around a long time. The early church needed to convince the world that the mortal prophet Jesus was a divine being. Therefore, any gospels that described earthly aspects of Jesus' life had to be omitted from the Bible. Think through Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you're reading with me, you've read Mark and you've read parts of Matthew, and so I'm sure you've read the gospels. Tell me quickly some aspects of God, the story of Jesus that are clearly explaining his humanity. His birth, That's a real good one. (laughs) Mm -hmm. In fact, you know all the Gospels we'll consider tonight called the Gnostic Gospels? They don't believe that he was born of a woman. See, Gnosticism didn't like being physical. But anyways, that's his birth. Give me a couple more. What what does the Bible say about Jesus' humanity, examples of his humanity? Pardon me? carpenter. Carpenter, so he worked for a living. Did he get hungry? Did he get tired? Yeah, he got hungry for 40 days, you know. He got angry, he cried, um, he died. That's kind of human. So, so statements like this, they come up with, and, and they're, they're nonsensical, but people believe them. Another Da Vinci Code. Jesus' establishment as the Son of God was officially, officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea. As opposed to the Bible teaches it. Some of the earliest writings of the church called the Apostolic Fathers confirm it. It's, it's just, again, it's, it's baloney. There's nothing recorded in the Gospels showing that Jesus clearly affirmed his own divinity. Can someone tell me from the Gospels where Jesus affirmed his own divinity? I and the Father are one. one. Okay, And what did the Jews do when he said that? They said, you try and make yourself equal with God. They understood him. How about when he was arguing with the Pharisees in John 8? And they said, they go, he said that, you know, Abraham saw my day and he was glad, Jesus said. And they go, you're not even 50 years old yet. How do you mean Abraham saw your day? And Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. Not I was. I am am is the name of God, Exodus chapter 3. If that's not a direct statement of divinity, I don't know what is. So, again, these statements are made. Have you ever met someone that says, well, I've read the Bible. I don't believe it. Have you ever met someone that says that? I remember I was in a coffee shop once, and I was reading my Greek New Testament. And this lady walks up to me and says, well, so I, I saw so it's a different language. What are you reading? I said, I'm reading the Greek New Testament. And she says, oh, I'm an English professor at UNR. This is down in Reno. And she says, you know, that I teach literature classes, and the Bible is just filled with contradictions. And so I, I grabbed my English Bible, and I handed it to her, and I said, I said, would you show me one? And, and she said, well, I can't, I can't. It's been a long time since I read it. I said, yet you tell your students, you can't show me one, but yet you tell your students the Bible's full of contradictions. Um, that kind of ended the conversation. <laughs> but, but, but if someone says that in authority, they believe it. Yeah. Even though if she read the Bible, she couldn't tell me You know, if I went around this room and said, how many of you read the whole Bible? I'll bet a majority of you have not. So when people out there say they've read the Bible, they don't believe it. I I don't believe that. So we'll answer a bunch of these as we go through the notes tonight. So with your notes, the New Testament canon, our New Testament's laid out. You know, and this is just stuff most of you already know. You know, the Bible's laid out this way. The New Testament, we have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then the book of Acts, and that pretty much covers the history parts. Those are history books. The Gospels are not straightforward biographies. The Gospels are what we would call theological biographies where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John show stories of Jesus and put them in an arrangement to to make a point about him. The book of Acts is kind of part two of Luke. Luke, The Dr. Luke wrote Luke and Acts, and so it's part two. And and he makes it very clear in both of them. I I researched hard to find the facts about this, so I'm not recording um, fables for you. 21 books after that, are epistles. So 21 books are epistles. Paul wrote 13 or 14. Do you remember what I said about the book of Hebrews last year, last week? Someone asked about Hebrews. That the Eastern Church believes Paul wrote Hebrews. The Western Church doubts it. So I put 13 or 14 because it depends on what part of Christianity you come from. Then there is um, seven or eight Catholic epistles. They call them Catholic. Why do they call them Catholic epistles? No? What does the word Catholic mean? Universal. It means universal. So, so that term became common for the seven letters written by the book of Hebrews, James, Peter, John, and Jude. Uh, they became known as the Catholic epistles. In other words, they apply to the whole church. It's probably the best way. And then the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. So there's our 27 books in that order. And, and so any questions on that? It's kind of straightforward stuff. So the historical development of the canon. I say that the above arrangement was not entirely agreed upon until the late 4th century. Even then, there were a few dissenters. In fact, I sent out to you some emails where I had one of those emails had canon lists. It was multiple church fathers when they were writing to their followers saying, these are the Bibles, these are the books you should read. And Gregory Gregory of Nazianzus was one of the... Lists I sent out to you. Gregory Nazianzus is my favorite church father. Um, He gives the list of New Testament books and gives 26 of them. He leaves the book of Revelation out. Anyone here with a Greek Orthodox background? Funny, it's not many you meet. If you ever want to visit a church that is very different, a Syrian Orthodox, so so the Eastern Orthodox, of which the prominent in history was the Greek, now the prominent one's Russian, but... um, Go to one of their services one time. Depends on which one you go to. There's one in Reno. It's a, it's a Serbian Greek Orthodox church, or it's a Serbian Orthodox church. Two and a half hour service, no chairs. You stand up the whole time. When I visited, they said there's a few chairs, but those are for old people. Don't sit in them. You know, because you participate in the service the whole time. But it, but anyways, they read what's called the lectionary. A lectionary is you read through the whole Bible based on the calendar. Every Sunday they read through portions of the Bible, they'll read some Old Testament, New Testament. They do not have the book of Revelation in their lectionary. The Eastern Church doesn't read it in church. They don't deny it, but they don't value it enough to read it in church. So, but as a general rule, the 27 books are in everybody's Bible. You see in the block there, in 367, Athanasius wrote his festal letter. Bishops of the major towns, and we'll talk about bishops in a bit, of the major towns would write an Easter letter to their church every year, and a lot of these are still in print. In 367, he wrote to his congregation, here's the books that should be read in church, and he lists them out, and he lists the 27 that we currently have. In 397, we have the Council of Carthage. Carthage is a town in North Africa where Augustine was a bishop, but this was before Augustine was a bishop and he influenced it, but he wasn't a bishop. It was a local church that put all 27 books in also. These are some of the earliest lists where all 27 are affirmed. So what, how do you feel that your book, your Bible, 27 books of New Testament, wasn't fully agreed upon for 300 years after it was written? How does that make you feel? Make you feel kind of, um. Doubtful? Does it bother you? Would you remember last week? You're a prophet, and you received the golden tablets. Remember that? Tell me you remember something about last week. And you know the story of the Book of Mormon. It's just this miracle. That's not how we got our Bible. The Bible is. A, I told you it was a very human process. A very human process that that we believe. If we go back to our chart. so I wish I had an overhead here. I wish I could put it up on the screen and all that. We believe God's pure revelation, the water coming into the pipe, is preserved as inspired word of God all the way through the process. The pollution comes in when we interpret it. But it's a very human process. You don't have that note. You need last week's notes. Would you hand that to the gentleman behind you? Um, So here's my point as I go through all of this. Do you remember what Timothy, Paul said to Timothy? Timothy, the scriptures you're raised on, that your mother and grandmother used to teach you about God, those are inspired God breathed, profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, training righteousness, so that you, Timothy, the man of God, be equipped for every good deed. And what Bible did Timothy use? He used a Greek translation of copies of Hebrew originals, copies of the Hebrew originals. And Paul calls his Bible, God breathed. So the human process... We say God is in right in the middle of it, bringing out the conclusion he wants. But it's a, a, a process that is, is, takes 300 years for the New Testament to be solidified and for everyone to agree upon it. So we'll look at the process now, okay? Let me get back to my notes. Any questions, thoughts, disagreements? Right. Well, and that—that's if—if you know, if in fact. Oh, you want last week's notes? And this week's. Well, do you have some more of this week's notes? So you got this one. Okay. Wow, this thing didn't print as big as I thought it would. Pull out on page um 14 of your notes. So, so Christina just asked a question. You know, ask the question again, so I can repeat it for the. So she's asked a question. When people make the arguments, how do you know the Bible is true when it's agreed upon three to four hundred years later? And it's a good question. It's a very good question. Now, you have to admit there's some level of, of. Doubt and faith already implanted in us. So if I want to believe the Bible is not from God, then that's enough proof for me. It's not. It's from men. If I want to believe that God is more than capable, I've seen it in my own life and world history, he is integrally involved in all of it, I have no problem believing he oversaw the process. We'll get more into this when we look at the manuscripts themselves. But if you look here in this chart, I'm sorry you have to put your glasses on, maybe you guys don't have to, but I have to put my glasses on. This is a chart that shows some early development of the canon, and, and you can see there, in the first seven lines, you see where it says, you know, Pseudo-Barnabas, Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Polycarp, you see those? Those early ones are called the Apostolic Fathers. This is a collection of writings that, it's in print today, um, it's worth reading, that these are the disciples, these are like two to three generations removed from the Apostles themselves. Some of them are actually the disciples of, of the Apostle John. The Apostle John was not put to death like the rest of them. He lived into his 90s and probably died in the mid to late 90s. And some of these, like um, Ignatius, met the Apostle John. So Ignatius was the bishop of, of um, <clears throat> a town just north of Israel. That will come to me some other day. Um, and, and so these guys, these guys are recipients of the apostles' teachings. They reference the books of the New Testament. But if you notice the X, what it says there, they cite, cite it or allude to it. They don't typically call it scripture. But they cite it as authoritative. And this is all in your notes in the next page, by the way, what I'm saying now. They cite it as authoritative. And here's what's going on there. To them... The word scripture meant ancient. So when they use the word scripture, they're quoting the Old Testament, which they do profusely. But when they quote New Testament writers, they'll say the apostles say. Jesus said. They're not not saying the New Testament. Why aren't they saying the New Testament? It's it's not collected and and accepted yet. But they have writings of Mark. They have the writings of Paul. And they quote them as authority. But to them, scripture is ancient. Ancient. And Paul just lived two generations before me. He's not ancient. So so the concept of the word graphe, scripture, referenced something that was an ancient authoritative writing. That's why they didn't use the word. But as we move forward, we see they start doing that. You get into the 2nd and 3rd century, and you'll see a lot more that's getting filled in there. And that'd be from, um, oh, you know, Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, over to, to, um, to Origen. Those guys... A lot more quotations of it, but what books are not being quoted much? Come on, look at it. Which books are not being quoted? Well, there's, there's, it's a blank slot, slot. Okay, 3rd John. 2nd John doesn't get much. 2nd Peter doesn't get much. Jude doesn't get much. Why not those books? Those we're going to see are what are called in our New Testament antilegomena. Though Those are the books that, that weren't accepted as quickly as the rest of them. And we'll look at, them, we'll look at all of them and, and ask why. <coughs> Excuse me. Let me get some water here. But you see the 4th century, all of a sudden now, we're seeing it all quoted as authoritative. You can go on and look at the list of canons that came out. Um, the different translations that were used to the, what books they put in them, and in the councils that, that established it. But what you see here is when the one statement at the beginning, open up with it, said every one of the books were either doubted or cons- were considered a forgery or doubted. This chart shows you that, as a general rule, they were not. In fact, very few of them were doubted. And, and yes, there are forgeries. There are forgeries. In fact, we're going to reference today a bunch of the Gospels, the, what's called the, the Apocryphal Gospels and the, the Gnostic Gospels. And they all have names on them. The Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Thomas. We'll, we'll read some from the Gospel of Thomas tonight. See, All of these have names to them. Do you know that all four of our Gospels... In the Greek text itself, don't say who wrote them. They don't say does, no, the, the, later on, church, the church put inscriptions on top, the Gospel of Matthew. But never in it does it say, I, Matthew, wrote this. It's interesting, the ones we call the false gospels all have the apostles' names to them, or Mary, or, or someone like that. But the ones that are actually in our New Testaments are somewhat anonymous. The church later added to it, John wrote this one. And, and I think, and I, I trust them. Here's my point. It's the false ones that tried to pretend they were the real ones. That, that and, and we'll look at those in a bit. So, <clears throat> this chart is just to help you see a development of acceptance of certain books. Let me get back into, um, I, w- I wanna get into the criteria And talk about why certain books were not accepted. And even read some of them to you. So did anybody read the infancy narratives of Jesus? Weird stuff, huh? Jesus was a little brat. Yeah, he was a little brat. And we'll read it to you in a minute. Um, So the reasons for the development of the canon. Why did it have to be developed? Why did we see this process? In the one word that could sum up the process of why the church said, where has God authoritatively spoken regarding Jesus, is the word heresy. The first heresy that was very prominent in the empire, started during New Testament times, but developed um, profusely in the second century, is called Gnosticism. The word Gnosticism, Gnostic or Gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, means knowledge. So Gnosticism was a belief That certain people have the knowledge of God. God has put that knowledge in certain people, and and you must go to them to get the truth. They are like interpreters of God. And Gnosticism held to many, many gods, of of which the God of the Old Testament was an evil one, the God of the Jews was an evil God. And all physical matter is evil. So, so your body, this chair, this world, is all the result of an evil God called Yahweh. And you can't trust him. So Jesus only appeared to be human. He wasn't really human. Because being human is not good. That's Gnosticism. So a lot of Gospels that portray that aspect of, of humanity, and Jesus is, is um, he appears to be human. In fact, a lot of the Gnostic Gospels, Jesus didn't actually die on the cross someone else did because to die you got to be human so and also the Gnostic Gospels Gnosticism well look look, look at the bottom down there the Gospel of Mary the Gospel of Philip and possibly the Gospel of Thomas are three such Gospels all written in the second third century so when you when you see books called the lost books of the Bible you ever seen those you know, Or I have one upstairs by Bart Ehrman called Lost Christianities. and, and the, These are the Christianities that were competing with what we call orthodoxy today. They were all just competing, and what we call orthodoxy went out in, in Nicaea in the 4th century. And, and it's, just, it's just not true. But it sells. It sells books. A lot of these guys love the Gospel of, of Thomas. If you saw the Da Vinci Code, they claim the Gospel of Thomas is the most correct one. Now, I sent that to you also. Anybody look at that? The Gospel of Thomas is not a gospel. It's 114 sayings. It's not a story. It's just sayings. Let me read a couple of them to you. So we have here, saying 108. Jesus said, He will drink from my mouth He he who will drink from my mouth will become like me. I myself shall become he. And the things that are hidden will be revealed to him. What does that mean? Ladies, here's one for you. Simon Peter said to him, Let Mary leave us, talking about Jesus' mother, let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman, will be make, every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. See, you didn't know that Jesus was prophesying gender issues in the 21st century, did you? Um, so I, I'm sorry I made fun of that. But, um, but you read through this and you go, this is... Um, some of, these, some of these are just simple Bible quotes of Jesus. Others are just, you just look at them and you kind of go, okay, let me read it backwards. Maybe it means something backwards. Um, but yet, when this was found in 1945, what's called the Nag Hammadi Library. So it's called Upper Egypt. Upper Egypt is the, is the upper part of the Nile River. Okay, so it's really what we would call Southern Egypt. They found this library in 1945 in the sand. Not this library, but thousands of of, of manuscripts. And and a lot of these Gospels were found then, all these stories. And they didn't exist before this in in, in our knowledge. They might have been quoted in an early document, but not till then were they found. Well, now we have proof the New Testament was forged because we have all these other Gospels. But you read them, you go th- th- that, and this is where the spirit of God comes in, you guys. If you, I send them to you, read these things and ask yourself, does this have the feel of Revelation, not the book of Revelation, but of God revealing? If you had read Susanna and Bell and the Dragon, good stories, but it doesn't have the feel of the rest of the book of Daniel. It's too Hollywood scriptish. So and we'll talk about what's the role of the spirit convincing us what scripture is in a moment. Questions so far, Gnosticism. So, so, so anyways, Gnosticism is growing, claiming revelation, because now they're claiming to be the conduit, certain Gnostics were claiming to be the conduit by which God was speaking. So now we have to ask the question, the church saying, well, where has God spoken? If Gnosticism is claiming to be the authoritative speech of God, and it's way different than what we believe, where has he spoken? So it's forcing them to ask the question, What books are actually inspired and which ones are not? Marcion. Marcion was a heretic. Look at these distinctions of Marcion here. Marcion held the distinction between the supreme God of goodness, that is the Father, Jesus, and the inferior God of justice, who was the creator of the physical world and the God of the Jews. So, He believed Jesus' father was not Yahweh. And Yahweh was the inferior evil God of Israel, much like the Gnostics believe. Um, Marcion was not a Gnostic. He held on to that belief, though. Um, He only believed in two gods, Jesus' father and the God of Israel, where Gnosticism believed in multiple gods. And so that's the first thing. He rejected the Old Testament because it could not be reconciled With Marcion's understanding of New Testament teachings. Rejection of the 12 apostles and their Jewish distortion of Jesus' teachings. You see, if the Old Testament represents a a subpar God, that's not good. Why would we listen to Jewish apostles? Except one, the apostle to the Gentiles. He only accepted Paul's letters, 10 of them, not the pastorals. What are the pastorals, by the way? Not, not Peter. If you said Peter, no. What are the pastoral epistles of Paul? First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. They're called the Pastoral's. They are written after Paul got out of prison. That, that Philippians and, and Colossians, when he's in prison. After he gets out, he he writes those books. So, um, Marcy only had ten. Marcion's a person, absolutely. Second, about 150 A.D., um, very, very influential. So Marcion also accepted the gospel of Luke. Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles. Luke is a Gentile, so he'll accept those writings, but he had to edit it. Had to edit it to take all that Jewish influence out of it. Every time someone, every time Paul quoted the Old Testament, obviously somebody put that in there. So Marcion took it out. He got rid of the first three chapters of Luke about the childhood of Jesus because it's too Jewish. And, and so he has a very truncated canon. Again, Marcion is very, he's becoming very popular. He has a canon now called, "This is the New Testament." So the rest of the church has to respond to it and say, say "Well, Mar- Marcion is, is, is denying tenets of the faith. Again, where has God spoken? We know Marcion's not right. Where's he from? Um, Sinope, S-I-N-O-P-E, which, um, Google it. Yeah. I want to say somewhere in Turkey, but I'm not positive. last one is, or the, the third one is Montanist. Now, Montanist, by the way, there's some books at the bottom of the page here, where well we reading. Metzger's book on the canon of the New Testament is, is superb if you want to dive in deep. Montanist... Um, He was not a heretic. He was just wild-eyed. He was a wild-eyed man. He wasn't a heretic where he taught heresy. Heresy meaning teaching something that leads you away from salvation. But he was um, definitely um, out on the fringes. 16... Okay, bottom of page 16. Montanism was an enthusiastic and apocalyptic movement that broke out in the second half of the second century. It claimed to be a religion of the Holy Spirit and was marked by a static outburst, which it regarded as the only true form of Christianity. Soon after his conversion, Montanus fell into a trance and began to speak in tongues. He announced that he was the inspired instrument of the Holy Spirit, John's Paraclete. He would actually, he would actually speak as though the Spirit was speaking through him. He says, I am the Holy Spirit. So, so a lot of people think he is a heretic claiming to be God. But more modern scholarship suggests no, he's simply claiming a first-person revelation. The Spirit is speaking through me. And here's what the Spirit spoke. He announced that he was the inspired instrument of the Holy Spirit. He had two women, Prisca and Maximilla, who followed him that likewise had these ecstatic experience. They both left their husbands and became his prophetesses. They believed the new Jerusalem would shortly descend upon their town of Papuza in Asia Minor, which is Turkey. They set up shop in that town and delivered many prophecies as they waited for this event. Guess what? Didn't happen. So, so he was seen as whacked. So did do you guys remember Harold Camping? Harold Camping was, was the, um, the, the, the founder of Family Radio. And um, he predicted on a couple of occasions Jesus is coming back. And people believed him. Flat out believed him. They sold their possessions. The last time it happened, i, I said this before, it's kind, of, it's kind of humorous. That people were so convinced that his date, that he said Jesus was coming back, they sold what they had. And there was a group of atheists that actually put advertisements out that advertised to Christians that if you pay us now, we'll take care of your animals. When you leave, because your animals will be alone. Now, I tell you, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Because you pay them ahead of time, you don't get raptured. And um, you're out of money. They got your money. So, you know, it's a a no-lose situation for them. But see, see, I I said last week, Christians can be naive. And these guys had quite a following until it didn't happen. But hold on to this idea that Jesus is coming back to put his kingdom on earth. That's what they were teaching in their town in, in Turkey. So, hold on, idea, because that will come up later again. So, those things Gnosticism, can someone define me Gnosticism real quick? What is Gnosticism? Knowledge? Okay. You have okay. You have to to right. So, the certain people have received revelation from God knowledge, and you, go, you get salvation through their knowledge. And salvation, by the way, isn't Jesus dying on the cross for your sins, salvation is getting information from God through the Gnostic. So Jesus, because since, since Jesus didn't really become human, he didn't die on the cross. So anyways, so that's Gnosticism. They were claiming authoritative revelation. Well, if God has revealed himself, where has he revealed himself? The reason is to start looking at where has God talked. Marcion believed in two gods, the evil god of the Old Testament, the good God of Jesus, the Jesus Father. And he did not like anything that involved Jews. Very anti-Semitic and purged his Bible of anything Jewish. We completely rejected the Old Testament, and anything in the New Testament that smacked of it. Um, Montanus was a, an apocalyptic, prophetic, um, ecstatic movement that was claiming the second coming. And again, all of a sudden now we have people claiming to be prophets of God and saying things odd. Who do, we, do we listen to them? We still have all this stuff still goes on today. So other factors, though, in the early church that forced discussion of canon issues. Persecution. So even today, when, when you're persecuted, they're going to do two things to you. When I'm, I'm talking true persecution, not making fun of you at work, um, which, which is a low form of persecution. And, I, and I'm, not a, I'm not a doomsday person. I'm not a, a conspiracy theorist. But I do believe harder persecution is coming. Um, but when that happens, when extreme persecution comes, they're going to first try and get you to deny your faith. And they're going to try and get you to um, repudiate your scriptures. And they'll want you to give them up so they can burn them. This happened in Russia. This happened in China. This happens everywhere that people come against the faith. So when they're coming to get you to deny your faith and burn your scriptures, what are your scriptures? So we have to decide what is actually revelation from God. So persecution forced the church to think about where has God spoken. Ancient bookmaking, we talked about that. And then this one can get boring, but what's the difference between a scroll and a codex from last week? A scroll, and it was rolled up. So it was rolled up from both ends, and you, uh, you unrolled it and rolled it at the same time as you read as you went through it. So and usually this one book of the Bible would be in a scroll. And do you remember how long the Isaiah scroll was from the Dead Sea Scrolls? 24 feet. I think 11, 12 inches by 24 feet. There's a picture of it in last week's notes. What's What's a codex? A book. It's a book. It's very interesting. The early church, so codexes, excuse me, scrolls were used in the first three, four centuries way more than codexes were used, except by Christians. Christians preferred the codex, not the scroll. And one reason it's in the book I recommend to you there is that if they're going to collect books together and call this our new Bible, they're going to do it in a codex format more than a scroll format. So it's not till the fourth or fifth century that the rest of the world started making codexes as the prominent thing, but the church started doing making codexes very early on. And then, so these things are like this, you guys. And that thick. We're gonna figure out which books to actually put in here. You know, we're not gonna put unnecessary books in here. Which ones actually belong in our scriptures? So the whole process of book making forced the church to say which ones belong. Very human processes, is it not? Okay, so now, any questions, thoughts, disagreements? Need caffeine to wake up? Sir? hmm I can't quite grasp why we went to the written tradition when there was such a widespread of Christianity at its onset. Mm-hmm. Can you give us any insight why that happened here? Well, we're gonna talk a minute about the old tradition, that in those first couple centuries where where not many of the New Testament books were quoted as scripture they actually held on to oral tradition called the rule of faith. And, and I would say that, that oral tradition, so this is kind of off the top of my head, but oral tradition only has um, power for a time because eventually it's going to deteriorate. And um, we stink at it. No, do we do because we, we are a visual culture and we, are, we have it all written down. We record it. So we're not good at passing something on orally. But the ancient world was very good at it. And so, so, but exactly why it went to a book form, there's a lot of stuff written on that. And I wish I knew more, now I, 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 makes me wanna go read more. So, yeah, but good, good question. And we'll get to that on page 19, actually. So what criteria, when they're looking at books, did they hold to? So look at the p- page 18. Up there it says apostolicity. Say that with me. See, I have a hard time saying that word. Apostolicity. What's that one shirt that has the word apostle in it? Say it. I cannot say that word. I can't. I'm not going to try. But apostolicity. So the question was, was the book written by an apostle or a close associate of the apostle? So you tell me which New Testament books are actually written by one of the twelve. Let's go through them. Matthew? Is is Mark an apostle? Okay. Next. Luke? Not an apostle. John? Acts? Luke? Okay. Now Mark and Luke are both close associates. Who's Luke a close associate of? Paul. And who's Mark a close associate of? Peter. Yeah. And, um, and he hung around with Paul for a while, but Paul booted him out. Mark was the one that abandoned him on the first missionary journey and wouldn't take him on the second one. So, so read Book of Acts. Um, Alright, so from there, we have 13 letters of Paul. Is Paul an apostle? Okay. After Paul, we have Hebrews. We don't know who. After that, we have James. He's called an, he's not one of the 12, but he is called an apostle at one point. Because in Galatians, Paul calls him an apostle. Paul says in Galatians, he says, you know, I went to Jerusalem and didn't see any of the other apostles besides Peter. Oh, except James. Including James as one of the apostles. And not, not the apostle James, because the apostle James died in Acts 12. Long before Paul ever became an apostle. Am I confusing you? After James, who? In your Bibles. Peter, Peter, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, an apostle. After that, 1, 2, Third John, an apostle. After that, Jude, not an apostle, a brother of Jesus. James and Jude are brothers of Jesus. Then lastly, the book of Revelation written by an apostle. So we have Mark, Luke, the book of Hebrews, James, and Jude that are not written by apostles. But they consider them apostolic men in close association with the apostles. Does that make sense? So that was one of the ones the church looked at. And <clears throat> so Jesus gives certain promises to, um, to his followers about revelation. And I want us to look at those. So open your Bibles. It was funny, people said, when's your Bible study? And I said, well, it's not really a Bible study. We're talking about the Bible. We're not studying the Bible. But open up the bottom page that says John 14, 26 there. John 14, 26. When you study the Bible, one of the things we usually do is we read it and go, how does this apply to me? As one of the first things we say. As opposed to reading it and say, what is being stated? Who is it being stated by and to whom is it being stated to? So right now, we're going to listen to Jesus' words, talking to his apostles. And let's interpret it in light of them first, and not immediately say, what does it mean to me? Does that make sense, you guys? So John 14, 26. Somebody read it. Actually, for the TV's sake, I'll read it. Okay? So 25. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So from a scripture perspective, what's Jesus saying here? These guys spent three years with Jesus. Then they got to go write it all down. The Spirit of God is going to come to you. He's going to teach you and guide you, and he'll remind you what I told you. I think that is a, a very important underlying support for the revelation that these guys received and wrote down. Started in oral, Dick, like you said, started oral, but was written down and eventually accepted as that. What's the application to us now? Again? Okay, okay but what, what do I take from this, the Holy Spirit in me? How does he remind me what Jesus said? That's where we want to go first. I think we should look at the principle we spoke to first. You guys will be told, reminded what I told you in the three years of teaching you. Is there an application to us today? What would it be? I'm not trying to trick you. So why? Why do I read my Bible? Why do I read my Bible? Okay, will the Spirit remind me what it says? All the time. time. I don't think the Spirit comes to me and says, let me tell you something Jesus said 2,000 years ago that's not in here. But what he reminded the apostles to put in here, then I consume and get in my head the Spirit of God that interacts with that and and teaches me. I firmly believe that. Look at the next one. It's a little more um, problematic. John 16, 13, 15. 13 to 15. I'm going to start in 12. I should have put 12 in there. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Who's he talking to? Yeah, his direct disciples. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will speak, not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So there, again, he's going to teach you, and he's going to tell you what is to come. So New Testament writers write a, a prophetic future things of what's going to come. You know, he reads Second Thessalonians. Paul talks about the second coming of Christ. The Spirit of God inspired him to do that. Does that apply to us? So does the Spirit of God tell you what's to come? Okay. And, and examples? We're talking prophets, right? Yeah. So, so if there are prophets today, he's going to tell them what's to come. Don't disagree. I don't believe this is a promise of every Christian, though. I think we start with first the apostles, and then it's all in your view on whether there's prophets here today you know, as far as predicting the future. But as a general rule, you don't get to this, you you can't tell me with authority what's gonna happen in six years from now. Yeah, that was something given to these writers. So anyways, that's a debatable thing that you can look at. You can work through that. I wanted to show you how Jesus' own teaching and the promise of the Spirit, I believe we can use that as some foundational passages to support the New Testament writers, the apostles and their apostolic men Um, The Spirit of God guided and led them. Guided them and led them. Does that make sense? Thoughts, questions? Acceptance and usage by the church. So I want you to think about Christianity now. Where did it start? So I wish I had visuals here. Started in in Israel. So think Jerusalem up to the sea, um, the sea of Galilee, up to Nazareth. From there, where'd it go? Come on, you guys. Well, absolutely outward. Absolutely the, the, the book of Acts records it going north into Turkey, over into Eastern Europe, and all the way to Rome eventually. And then Paul, the Bible doesn't record it, but Paul's goal was to get to Spain. Spain was the end of the world. We know that by the end of the first century, Christianity is in England. We know by the end of the first century, Christianity is is thoroughly established in Africa and all the way to India by the end of the first century. So Christianity has grown by the time the apostles are dead. If Jesus died in 33 AD, let's say, by the time John the apostle dies in 90-something AD, the gospel has gone out to pretty much the known world and Um, and you have major churches established. So I want you to hold your left hand up. Okay? Hold your left hand up. I want you to see your palm as the Mediterranean Sea. Okay? There were certain churches that were seen as significant because there was a belief that apostles established them in some way. Not, not all of them, you'll see in a moment. But they, these are significant authoritative churches over the rest of them. And each one of them had what was called, um, they were called bishoprics. So they had, um, they were called, um, oh, no, I just lost the word. Uh, um, it'll come back to me. But your, your pinky finger is Alexandria. All right? So that's down in Egypt, at the top of the Nile River. So Alexandria. Your ring finger is Jerusalem. Your middle finger is Antioch, where Paul left on his first missionary journey. Then your index finger is Constantinople, which didn't exist as any significant until Constantine made it his capital. Then it became the center of Eastern Christianity until the 1400s. And your thumb is Rome, right? So these five, um, but that word has just left me. I hate that. You you, you lose a word and you know it's there and three o'clock in the morning they'll come back to you and I'll I'll call (laughs) y'all. So you guys have a lifeline down the middle of your hand? To the left is the Latin speaking church. To the right is the Greek speaking church. All right? So the church on the right is what we call today Eastern Orthodoxy. The church on the left is what we would call Roman Catholic. We don't exist yet as Protestants. All right? So even then they weren't called Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholic are called the church. And so these five towns were the significant centers of Christianity, and their bishops were over all the area. Over all the area. So they had authority over all the other smaller town bishops. Guess what they were called? They were all called Papa, which comes into Latin to English as Pope. They're all called popes, all of them. It's not till the Middle Ages that the Pope of Rome claimed ultimate authority over all of them. And these guys all said, I don't think so. That, that's not the word I'm thinking of, Pentarchy. Pentarchy means five, of a rule of five, which would apply. But here's my point. So, the rule of faith, the, the thing here about the significant churches, as the church grew and grew, you have these major centers of Christianity. They have great influence over everything else. And so, when a, an insignificant small church is saying something, but yet the majority of the churches are saying something else. The early church, because of oral tradition, said, "No, no, no, no. We're not going with the maverick. We're not going with the new guy in the block. We're going with the established churches." So this is when churches had authority; they don't have today. First of all, people don't like authorities in their life today, so we don't give churches any authority. Do you know the church? Do you know the Bible tells you to submit to me as your elder? How's that fit for you? How's that working? It's kind of like no. <laughs> well, we'll we'll give you the, the the respect to listen to you, but the idea of res- submit to your elders that is not American. But during this time, it was very, it was very important. You didn't disobey your bishop. Um, so so anyways, that that's the point there of criteria. Which of the churches accept them? And if the majority of the churches accepted them, then, then. We, we, we believe them. So, why wouldn't 2nd, and 3rd John be accepted? It took a couple hundred years. They're the okay, well, they, they're probably the most recent, and they were probably written in the 90s in, in John's life. They're written to a very specific person, it didn't get much circulation. So it took a long time for it to be circulated. Well, 1 John circulated a lot, but 1 John is a general letter that goes out to the church. Second and 3rd John are very clearly written to uh, individuals in, in specific churches. So so since since they didn't get distributed to churches much, then they weren't easily accepted early on because multiple churches didn't know about them. Make sense? You just have the of the going out? Yeah, exactly. It's distribution. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let's read what Augustine has to say Augustine now we're talking 400 AD top of page 19 Augustine Augustine stated the Christian reader will hold fast therefore to this measure in the canonical scriptures that he would prefer those that are received by all Catholic churches Je- ladies and gentlemen Catholic does not mean Roman Catholic Catholic means the universal church here, okay? So at this point, there's not this sense of Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodoxy. This is called the Catholic Church. How many of you said the Apostles' Creed I'm growing up? Because a lot of Protestant churches change it. But we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in one apostolic, apostolic and Catholic Church. Small it's small c, meaning not, not the Church of Rome, but the universal church it comes from the apostles and is universal. That's the point. So, all Catholic to those which some of them did not receive, I, I, I stop. That he would prefer those that are received by all Catholic churches, as to those who, which some of them did not receive. Among those again which are not received by all, let him prefer those which the more numerous and weightier churches are major centers. Received to those which fewer and less authoritative churches hold, but if, however, he finds some held by the more numerous and some held by the churches of more authority, though this is not very likely to happen, I think that in such a case they ought to be regarded as of equal authority. So at this time, there's not a center of Christianity, one center that says we need to go to that one center, that one person, and say what's the answer. There's a belief that God has spoken and that word has traveled and multiple centers of of influence and authority were agreeing on what was Revelation. Very human process again. Judy. Um, uh, No, they didn't. So so uh, um, in your chart there of the different early church fathers, Irenaeus wrote a book called Irenaeus or Irenaeus, people say it differently. He wrote a book called Against Heresies. And in there he's saying, where where does authority lie? It lies in the teachings of these particular churches that that have the most influence. And he's from the West. He's from um, Italy area. So he picks the Bishop of Rome, and he lines out the first ten bishops of Rome and shows how they have influenced the whole area. by They then appoint bishops. And he believed Peter was the first bishop of Rome. So then he lines them all out because he's living during the 10th bishop. And so, so that, that his writings are used for, for supporting apostolic succession, that Peter's authority was given to the next one and the next one, but he doesn't say that. But what he says is certainly Peter appointed that one and he appointed that one, he appointed that one. And so we have this, this, this rope of influence and authority, but not that this one got the authority of Peter. That's a later development of a doctrine that wasn't in the second century. Um, So I'm not sure I answered your question, but but go to to number three, the rule of faith. This goes back to Dick's question about oral authority. This can be summarized as an agreement of a particular book with the basic Christian doctrines recognized as normative by the church, i.e. agrees with the oral tradition mentioned above. So, church fathers as Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Hippolytus, all second century make reference to accepted rule of faith. There's a content of the gospel that we all agree upon. And as you read through it, do you know what it is? All of them, this is written in multiple fathers, some form of this. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in his son Jesus Christ who through the Virgin Mary became human and went to the cross and died for us, was buried and rose again on the third day and ascended to the right hand of God. It's the Apostles' Creed. It's the Apostles' Creed that then became the foundation for the Nicene Creed. It it is universal in the early church, this, this rule of faith. And so if the book agrees with this rule of faith, then we'll see it, and it has apostolic background to it, the church has accepted, then we agree God has brought this forth to us as his inspired scripture. If it doesn't agree with those things, then it's out. And, and you'll we'll see that in a moment. Um, I guess what time it is, because I want to. We have time. So the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Peter, the gospel of Mary, out. Because. It did not agree with the rule of faith. A lot of them denied Jesus, actually died and rose again. So, so there's all this conspiracy theory, you guys, that these early Christians in the 4th century were so controlling and so, so wicked that they squashed all other forms of Christianity and rose as the victor. So the scholars call them the proto-Orthodox. You know what proto means? Proto means before, so, so you know, the early Orthodox, as opposed to, so, so, so here's how they look at it. I want you to think of, of, here we are, Jesus time, and then now look over here, I'll tell you, Jesus time, now look over here 400 years later. So some of these scholars, Bart Ehrman is one of them, he, Bart Ehrman is the head of the religion department at the University of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. A brilliant man, I've read several of his books atheist, atheist that runs the religion department. He was a Christian, went to Moody Bible Institute, graduated Moody Bible Institute, got married there, went to Wheaton College, got a master's degree, and then went on to um, Princeton Seminary to get another master's degree and his PhD. And he became agnostic at that point. He's an expert in textual criticism, which we'll start talking about next week, the manuscripts. His wife is still a, a vibrant believer, And he's been writing, probably written 30, 40 books against Christianity since he became an atheist. Um, And and if you watched him teach, he's incredibly compelling. He's funny. I've seen debates with him, with other uh, Christian scholars. And you want to love him. But this is what he teaches. So in early Christianity from Jesus' time, you have these threads of different forms of Christianity that are all valid. You have Gnostic Christianity. You have Marcion's Christianity. All these different ones are competing. But as you move towards the 4th century, the 3rd and 4th century, the, the proto-Orthodox, us, we start squashing them. We, stop, we start um, burning their documents, denying them the right to meet. And, and so ultimately all those die out. and What you're left with is the Nicene Christianity which we just quoted, the Apostles' Creed, which is a form of the Nicene of Christianity. And, and so, go ahead, Dick. You have a clarification question? So, so here's what I suggest the rule of faith teaches. That from the very beginning, there is a core, a strong, imagine, you know, just imagine a big three, four-inch cable that runs straight from the Apostle Jesus to the Apostles through the first, second, third, fourth century. And off of that comes strands that we would call Gnostic Christianity, Marcion's Christianity, and all these different ones that were heretical. that They were not equal competing ones. They were diversions from the real one. The rule of faith, and you read those early documents, is very clear. Does this teaching come from the apostles? Was it handed down appropriately to the appropriate church leaders and gets to our day? And you can take it right back to their generation to see it was. But, but that then doesn't give credence to those other forms of Christianity. And doesn't sell books either, by the way. You know, Bart Ehrman's books sell. And have you ever heard of Lane Pagels or Pagels? She's a big proponent, she's a scholar, a big proponent of, of Gnostic Christianity as the true Christianity. And she has sold tens of millions of books. It sells. So I would suggest to you, there's not competing Christianities that are all equal in the early centuries. There's one form that's just re- d- d- that is represented by the rule of faith. And off of that comes branches that did not last. And yes, they destroyed their documents. The church did not want people reading those things, so they burned them. And whether you agree with that or not, you know. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like you walk into your kid's bedroom and you see them reading, you know. I don't know, pick something that you think is destructive to them. What are you going to do to it? You're going to get rid of it. You know, so, so that's, that's what people in leadership do. Sometimes they're overbearing, I'm sure. Um, if you come to me and say, hey, I want to read, I I'm going to read, and I'm talking about a good one. I think you should read the Book of Mormon. I think you should read, you know, things like that. They're worth reading to find out why people believe them. But there's certain things that I think are, are destructive. I'll say, don't read that. Don't waste your time. There's too many good things out there to read. So anyways... Um now Dick, go ahead. And 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 who was this? Oh, Augustine. Okay, Bishop of Hippo, yeah. Yeah, and, and he's, he's in the fourth century of that stream, but, but he would argue that he is at the, the so if I say fourth century, we're talking 300 years after the New Testament was written, and he would argue that he is the product of that rule of faith that was then written down. In Augustine, we still have his books. He has commentaries on over half the books of the Bible. Yeah, um, so the last one, then we're gonna get into the Antelagomena. The witness of the Spirit and the self-authenticating nature of the Scripture. This is different than the previous three. The previous three, apost- apostolicity, accepted by the majority of churches, and the rule of faith, those are historical historical um, scenarios. We're looking at history to decide how this happened. We're looking back and, and trying to figure it out. This one is very different. This one comes out of the Reformation, especially John Calvin. And, and listen to what the... the, the um, um, the confession of, and what is the confession? Is this the French confession of faith? It says this, in the bottom of page 19, we know these books to be canonical. After listing the 66 books, we know these books to be canonical and the sure rule of our faith, not so much by the common accord and consent of the church, what we just went through, the church determined it, as by the testimony and inward illumination of the Holy Spirit which enables us to distinguish them from other ecclesiastical books upon which, however useful, we cannot found or establish any articles of faith." So here he's saying, less emphasis on how history develops and the church determined it, more on what the Spirit tells you. Let's, let me tell you why he did that. The Reformation is ultimately a rebellion against the authority of the Catholic Church. So if the process I just described to you is really based upon the authority of the people in the church are determining which books belong, well then all of a sudden that we have the church over the canon. The church tells you what books belong and then the extension of that, the church then tells you what it means. Calvin's saying no, The church is not over the canon. The canon is over the church. And we know what books belong because the Spirit of God confirms them to us. And we submit the church to that. But what what weakness do you see in Calvin's view? What weakness do you see in Calvin's view that it's the Spirit who tells you which books belong in the Bible, not the church? Okay, the wrong spirit, it's more interpretive. So let's go back to Joseph Smith. If you, have, have you spent many time with Mormon missionaries come to your door? And if you, if you push them a little, they're, they're very fairly well trained on what to say. I was going to say indoctrinated, but that's, an, that's not an insult. I'm not trying to insult them will say, well, I don't accept Joseph Smith as a prophet or the Book of Mormon is true. And say, no, we have a burning in the bosom. We have a burning in the bosom that Joseph Smith is a true prophet and the Book of Mormon is the Word of God. So they're claiming what? The Spirit has told them. You can't argue with it. So I struggle with that, with making the Spirit personally revealing it to you as the primary authority. I really struggle with it. I don't want to deny he does that because I do believe I can read Scripture and get a sense from the Spirit of God, God is speaking to me. But do I lean on that alone to determine which of the books belong in the Bible and which do not? I, I, I struggle with that. And that may just be I'm a product of my age, of, of my times. You know, I'm a product of a, a suspicion of the Book of Mormon, so therefore I don't want to accept their methodology for the rest of Scripture. But it was very important to Calvin and the Reformers. Um, so thoughts on that? Questions. Well, do you think because the reformers, because the Catholic Church was in such a bad place at the time with indulgences and all that stuff that was going on that they had to go that way? Well, yes, so so certainly I'm a product of my time, they're a product of their time. So she's she's suggesting that the reformers were because of some of the 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 abuses, they perceived the abuses of the Catholic Church, they had to move away from the church as the authority. And yes, that's exactly what it was. Um, but I think, it's, I think we should bring them all together. We have an historical development of the church struggling through where has God spoken. I think we need to look at it as very important to us. But we also have the spirit of God in us individually and collectively. And I'll never forget the collective part, too, because that's very important, that, that he's in us. We are his church. And so, was there another hand that I missed? Randy. Um, you know, if we're saying the spirit told me mm-hmm. um and then we say, Well, Tony told me Sunday morning or we I was with a group of friends, or Joseph Smith told me, then how do we judge? Is it is it not the scripture then that we say, Okay, what you heard does it line up with the scripture? So so, so what Tony said, mm-hmm. line up the Correct. So, so so but which which is the chicken, which one's the egg? How do you know what the scriptures are? If first the spirit's to tell you what the scriptures are, then you can then evaluate my teaching. Or if the Spirit says something to you, well, is that you, Spirit? Let me read the Word. You've just made your experience of hearing the Spirit submit to your understanding of the Word. So the Word becomes primary over your experience of the Spirit. And that this is the whole problem. Wh- which is it? The church has established these are the books of the Bible, and we submit to those. The Spirit teaches us and guide us, but he doesn't contradict that. Paul, or, uh, Calvin was saying that made Scripture the church over everything. And he was trying to deny the authority of the Catholic Church at this point, so he wasn't going to do that. I, I'm simply saying I think we need to keep them all there. And, and, and you, if you know me, so this is where, and Randy knows me, that I'm skeptical. When people say God said to me, I said, yeah, right. I firmly believe God can talk to us, but I doubt he talked to you. So, so th- that's, my, that's my skepticism. I fight it all the time. I fight it all the time. And I realize I'm a skeptic that, that I can take it too far. It's, just, it's deeply ingrained in me. I don't know from my agnostic dad, I don't know where it comes from. But, um, and, and the other side of that is someone who believes everything. You know, I'm the skeptic, and then there's the, the, the naive person in the middle is a better place to be, you guys. So, work on it. Okay, we're going to talk about the New Testament antilegomena. Say the word again, antilegomena. anti-legomena. Hama-legomena. Hamalegomena. Say. So, antilegomena means what? Anti-lego. Antilego. Lego is the Greek word for to speak. Legomena is the participle for speaking. Anti means against. So, those books that were spoken against by different people in church history. <clears throat> and I want to hear honestly from you. So, let me just say it now. Just be honest, okay? This is being recorded, no one's watching. <laughs> um, are there certain books in the New Testament you like a lot? T- tell me some of them John, Acts, Ephesians, Romans. In my email this morning, I said, Matthew's my favorite gospel. And I said, I don't know why, it just is. Um, Now, tell me some of the books in the New Testament maybe you don't read much or you don't relate well to. (laughs) Revelation? (laughs) How many would say Revelation? Okay. Jude? Jude, Why not Jude? Just Just don't relate to it. Yeah. So is Jude as inspired as, what's your favorite book? Okay. Is Jude as inspired as John? It's not. As far as the Holy Spirit goes, John, Jude is less inspired, full of errors. So I'm setting you up, Wendy, I'm setting you up. <laughs> you, you, you took the bait. Well, some people saw these as less inspired. So let's just walk through them quick. Book of Hebrews. First of all, look at the under New Testament interlegomena in the middle of the paragraph. It says, as Geisler and Nick suggest. You with me there? Yeah. These books were seldom considered anti canonical and even uncanonical. In other words, these books were never said don't belong in the Bible. Instead, they were given a sort of semi canonical status, as has sometimes been accorded to the Old Testament Apocrypha that we looked at last week. Um, and you can read more about that in the book by Metzger or the book by Bruce on the canon. Book of Hebrews. So, the Eastern Church accepted it. But the Western Church struggled with it. The Eastern Church accepted it because it's written by who? And Paul is an apostle. Western Church didn't fully believe that. And if apostolicity is an important criteria to a book belongs in the Bible, we don't know who wrote it. In fact, that would suggest to you a second generation Christian wrote it, not a first generation. And and that's my understanding of the quote there, Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. So look at that with me. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Meaning what? That the person writing this didn't hear Jesus. Okay, So, thus the author was not one who directly heard from the Lord. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. The apostles had the ability to do miracles. This guy's saying, these guys heard Jesus. They did the miracles. Well, Paul didn't hear Jesus. Not why he walked the earth. But I believe when Paul was in Arabia for those three years, he was taught by Christ. And he says, I receive from the Lord what I delivered to you. So he firmly was taught by Jesus. And Paul did miracles. That's why I don't think Paul wrote this. So whoever wrote this is someone who was led to the Lord by someone who knew Jesus. So the suggestion there is, it doesn't belong in the Bible. Now, I don't don't think it kicks it out, but that's one reason why. Does that make sense? How many of you love the book of Hebrews. I know. I'd love to teach you the Book of Hebrews on Sunday morning, but to do so, we'd have to have a lot of background in the Old Testament first. And because it's it's so filled with Old Testament stuff that, that we'd have to do a survey of the Old Testament first, and then we do Hebrews, the Book of James. And so you, so I, I wrote these notes. I wrote these notes years ago, but I modify them again before men's breakfast and send them out Friday. And you start doing James. So let me read to you what. Martin Luther thinks of Daryl's plan to study James. So below is a quote from Martin Luther in the preface to his 1522 edition of the German Bible. He also had a low view of Hebrews, Jude, and the book of Revelation. Though this epistle of St. James was rejected by the ancients, which, which is not, that's a blanket statement, not entirely true. Some did. I praise it and consider it a good book because it sets up no doctrines of men, but vigorously promulgates the law of God. However, to state my own opinion about it, though without prejudice to anyone, I do not regard it as the writing of an apostle, and my reason follows. In the first place, it is flatly against St. Paul and all the rest of scriptures in ascribing justification to works. It says that Abraham was justified by his works when he offered his son Isaac Though in Romans 4, St. Paul teaches to the contrary that Abraham was justified apart from works by his faith alone, before he had offered his son, and proves it by Moses in Genesis 15. So here's what it says. Romans chapter 4, Paul uses Genesis 15 and says, see, justification is by faith, because Genesis 15, where God, where God comes to Abraham and, and reveals to him, Abraham, you're gonna have children. More numerous than the stars, more numerous than the sand of the sea, and you're going to own all your family's going to own all this country. And Abraham had no children, and he owned no land at that moment. In 156, Genesis 15:6 it says, "Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Thus the gospel is, you believe in Jesus and you are accounted as righteous. So James takes that. same exact verse in James chapter two. And he jumps from James chapter 2, excuse me, James jumps from Genesis 15 to Genesis 22 where Abraham obeys God to sacrifice Isaac. You with me? And when he did that, James says that act of sacrificing Isaac fulfills the promise of Genesis 15 because, because Abraham obeyed God, he's now considered righteous. That seems like a direct contradiction of Paul. And it's one we'll figure out someday. Actually, come to men's Bible study. Darrow will explain it to us this year, or men's breakfasts. So, so that's what Martin Luther's saying here. He contradicts Paul. And by the way, the Reformation comes right out of the teachings of Paul in the book of Romans. Martin Luther is reading the book of Romans in Greek, and he sees in the book of Galatians, he's trained in Latin, but he knows Greek. And he sees in there, it says, repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, where the Latin Vulgate says, do penance and believe in Jesus. And when Martin Luther saw it, said, repent, not do penance, he said it changed his world. It's based upon a faith, not upon doing penance. Penance is when you do Hail Marys and Our Fathers and those kind of things. Was real, mm-hmm. and it's just what James says in one verse, Scott. That is so hard. I think that's the way to reconcile it. I reconcile it as genuine faith produces works, guaranteed. If you, if you Paul, James says, if you have faith and no works, your faith's dead. So, but in in chapter two, let me see if I can find it real quick. Um, verse 20, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not, this is 21, James 2.21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was, faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it's counted to him as righteousness. So that, that's, that was hard for Martin Luther to get around. He couldn't get around it. Therefore, James doesn't belong. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep reading them. It's a long quote. Where did I stop? Now although the epistle might be helped in the interpretation devised for this justification by works, it cannot be defended in its application to works of Moses' statement in Genesis 15. For Moses is speaking here only of Abraham's faith, not of his works, as St. Paul demonstrates in Romans four. This fault, therefore, proves that this epistle is not the work of any apostle. In the second place, its purpose is to teach Christians, but in all this long teaching, it does not one mention, does not once mention the passion. What's the passion? The death of Christ, the, death of Christ. the resurrection? or the spirit of Christ? He names Christ several times. However, he teaches nothing about him, but only speaks of general faith in God. Now it is the office of the true apostle to preach of the passion and resurrection and office of Christ and lay the foundation for him, for faith in him. And Christ himself says in John 15. So um, you can read the rest of it. I want you to go below that where it says passages where James does reference Jesus in the Spirit. James 1-2, he mentions Jesus Christ. James 2-1, he mentions Jesus Christ. James 5-7, he mentions the Lord, referring to Jesus. And James 5-8, he mentions the Lord. And James 4-5, he mentions the Spirit, but most translations put it as little s, not big s, referring to the human spirit, not the Holy Spirit. So James doesn't talk about Jesus much, or the Holy Spirit. So Luther says... Put it aside. He actually put it at the back of his Bible. Put it at the end. So, you guys like James? Do you read it? I, I don't know because he didn't like Revelation either. I don't know. Do, do you read James? Daryl likes it. I, I think it's a great book. I, I hold it as Scripture. But you have to deal with these things. You've got to deal with these issues that Luther raises. And And have you ever heard the phrase, the canon within the canon? See, we can't do this anymore. When, 20 years ago, I could do it to all of you, because you all had a Bible you actually read, as opposed to a computer you looked things up. I would have you open, bring your Bible like this. Then I would have you look at the edges and look at where all the grease of your fingers is to see where you spend your time in your Bible. And when I did that, you would see Genesis and Exodus all greased up. You would see Proverbs, Psalms and Proverbs. You'd see the Gospels and Paul's letters, mostly Paul's letters. That just, and, and there was portions of the Old Testament that um, you'd be like, oh, those pages are stuck together because I've never opened them. You know, like Second Chronicles or something. Or, or Hagg- "haggaguck," whatever that book is called, you know. Um, and um, so I learned then that my canon within the canon was Paul's letters. I spent most of my time reading Paul, so I was a Pauline Christian. So I made a commitment then to not read Paul for a long time, and I went from Hebrews to Jude and read it for years only. I, I'm not one of those guys that starts in Genesis and goes to Revelation. hope that doesn't disappoint you. It's too methodical. You know? I'm not an engineer. I don't do that. Um, I kind of wake up and Randy, I say, God, what do you want me to read this week? <laughs> and then I open my Bible. But we often have our favorite books of the Bible as we go. So, so James, James is one that I, 20 years in my walk with God, did I spend much time in it? I love it. But these things are true. It is a different perspective than Paul. Second Peter. 2 Peter was doubted by some in part because it was different than 1 Peter. It's very, so imagine this. Imagine this 1 Peter. Look at me. So imagine this is the style and grammar of 1 Peter, okay? Very smooth, okay? Very, very smooth, all right? Now, 2 Peter is like this, okay? Which would suggest different authors. And as a general rule, and, and Peter's a fisherman. You know, and, and he's not very educated. He can't write well. That's one of the things about, about First Peter so smooth. But who wrote First Peter? Huh? Is that what it says? Yes, it does. <laughs> Silas was his secretary. It's called an amanuensis. In other words, he, he dictated it. In ancient book writing, Emanuensis sometimes had a lot of, of freedom to take a, um, an uneducated fisherman and make his writing smooth. Something like that. So who wrote the book of Romans? Paul spoke it. He didn't write it. Go to Romans 16. As Paul's in it, he says, I, Tertius, wrote this book. Paul's dictating to Tertius, and Tertius writes it down. Paul had eyesight problems, we believe. If you look to the book of Galatians and and Paul says, you know, when I came to you, you received me in all my illnesses. You would have poked out your own eyes and given them to me if you could. Because he says, I came to you in illness. And a lot of people believe. And sometimes Paul says, see what large letters I assign my name to this letter. Um, then he talks about a thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. Some p- p- messenger of Satan that buffets him. A thorn in the flesh could be a physical ailment. So some believe Paul had eyesight problems and someone else wrote his letters for him. Has he dictated them? Well, someone Peter dictated. So, so that's one reason. But nonetheless, and he quotes, if you read 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude together, they overlap amazingly. Talking about the false teachers. And so Peter either copied Jude or Jude copied Peter. And people struggled with that. It's funny how they struggle with that, but they don't struggle with the fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are telling the exact same stories. So it's just, critics are Critics just look for something wrong. 2nd 3rd John, we already talked about that. Very poor circulation. They, they didn't get put out much. Jude's the one I want to talk about. Who didn't like Jude? She didn't like Jude. So when you check Wendy's Bible, you're going to see Jude is in the back. (laughs) Um, But Jude, remember last week, I don't know if you caught it because I didn't emphasize it too much. When I mentioned that what we call the Apocrypha and the Catholic Church calls Deuterocanonical, they added the seven books. The New Testament writers never once quote them. They never once quote those books as authoritative. And but that, that can't be pushed too far because they also never quote Esther. There's the other books they don't quote in the New Testament. So be careful with that being your primary argument. But Jude quotes two what's called pseudepigraphal books. Say that word, pseudepigraphal. Come on. Antelagamina, homilagumina, pseudepigraphal. These are all great words. Yeah, these are all great words. Pseudepigraphal is two words, False writer. A pseudepigraphal book is a book written by an unknown person claiming to be famous person. Make sense? So Jude quotes 1 Enoch. And 1 Enoch is the seventh son of Adam. And Jude quotes it like it's true. It's probably written a century before Jesus was born. And it was popular among Jews. And he quotes it. He quotes it as scripture, though. And he quotes it as authoritative. Turn there with me. Jude, what's right in your book? Jude 14. It was about all these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. That's the fourth time the word ungodly is in there. And all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Jude is quoting this prophecy as real. And does it sound like he's actually quoting it as though Enoch actually wrote it? But we know Enoch didn't write it. So why would we trust Jude if he's quoting a book that is not inspired scripture? Okay. Oh, my goodness, we're late. I didn't know that. Also, he quotes, he alludes to the assumption of Moses, Jude 9, but when the archangel... Michael, contending with the devil, was disputed with the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. He said, the Lord rebuke you. So he alludes to um, one book and he quotes another that are not seen as authoritative in anybody's canons. So what do we do with that? Some people said, kick it out. Now Paul also quotes pagan poets. If you look there in Acts 17 in Titus 1, he quotes, he says, all, all Cretans are lazy gluttons, as your poets say. He also quotes a poet there in Acts 17 when he's talking to the, um, the Athenians that, as your poets say, we're all offspring of God. So he's not, he's not quoting them to say they write scripture. He's quoting them to say they say truthful, truthful things. And so it's possible Jude is quoting some things that he believes are truthful, without giving the whole writing authoritative scriptural, scripture authority. Does that make sense? It may not satisfy it, but... So let me... Let me Revelation, just because it's weird. All right, let's move on. <laughs> let me ask this, and I apologize for being late. I wasn't watching the clock. Some would say today we should be open to the idea of adding books to the Bible. Paul wrote three letters to the Corinthians. What if we found them? What if we found the third one? Should we put it in the Bible? Paul wrote a letter to the Laodiceans because he tells the Colossians, he tells the Colossians, you get that letter and read it and give them this one to read. We don't have it. Let's say we found those. Should we add them to our Bible and make it books 27, 28, and 29? Why not? Okay, so. The fact that he was telling Timothy that he had the, the actual word of God in his hand. hand, yes. Same thing.
1: The mm-hmm. providential work of God. Right. And
0: that means everyone up until now, uh, God didn't do the providential part. I agree. So I, I agree 100%, Scott, in the providence of God. And in the scripture I would use is that Peter tells us, 2 Peter that you have everything you need for life and godliness. So if God left certain things out of the canon, then you don't have everything you need for life and godliness. And and so I agree 100% that I think the canon is closed. When people want to add to it, like some have suggested that we should add Martin Luther King's letters from the Birmingham jail to the New Testament. And it's a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal document, historically very important to our world and, and speaks a lot of truth in it, but it doesn't belong in our Bibles. Because your so question is, if, if we know there's three letters and we find them, how can we deny them to be put in the canon? Because I think what he said, God didn't choose providentially to bring it out then. Because it doesn't mean everything Paul wrote and said was inspired. You know? Obviously, Peter wasn't inspired by everything he said because Paul takes him to task in Galatians chapter 2 for being wrong. So, so anyways, it's a question to think through. If people are asking that question today. Um, What would be required to have an open canon? We would have to have the Spirit authoritatively, infallibly leading people to write something. And as as good as the letter from the Birmingham jail might be, I don't believe it's an infallible inspiration of the Holy Spirit.